everyone. Welcome to another episode of Moss and Friends. In today's episode, we chat with Madison Campbell of Lita Health about the company's goals for supporting both sexual assault survivors and perpetrators. Lita is tackling this from multiple angles, from supporting institutions through the process, providing programs to rehabilitate those that have committed sexual assaults, and selling kits to victims. We hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, and welcome to our New Year's episode of Moss and Friends. Uh, we're super, super excited to have our guest, our first guest of the year, um, Madison Campbell, who's the CEO and founder of Lita Health. We're so excited to be chatting with Madison. We've been following Lita for the past year and all of the great things that have been going on with Lita as they grow. Uh, we were first connected and learned more about Lita via the Twitterverse uh, when Madison posted about creating kits out in Palm Springs. Uh, and our previous guest, Lex, who's also a really great friend of hers, reposted it. So, you know, it's all just that whole concept of what is it like six degrees of connections or something like that, where we were able to get introduced to Lita and what Madison's creating. Would you like to add some color to that, Madison? Yeah. Palm Springs was a crazy time for me. Like when you, when you start a company, you have like no one to do like your manufacturing or anything like that, especially when you have like a physical good. And so, you know, I put it out into like the world um, and I was like, look like just people come help me like I'll let you stay like I'll let you do whatever I'll buy you food but like just help me assemble this stuff and you would not have imagined how many people were so supportive of everything that we were doing and two like people I've never met off of Twitter ended up coming out to Palm Springs and helping me manufacture like the initial prototype kits they never went out to any like survivors but they went out to a bunch of like product testers and to this day, one of the people that came out to assemble kits is someone that we want to bring on full time. And so that's kind of like the weird six degrees of separation too, where like, you never know somebody random from the internet is going to come over to your house. You're going to meet them and eventually maybe they work for you. It's crazy. Yeah, no, that's, that is, I mean, like, I think that we've met so many people just through like internet friends that just end up becoming in real life, like really great friends and everyone's always like creating some great ambitious products that are needed in this world. So we're so, so excited to hear like, you know, how positive that turnout, uh, you know, came from just a tweet, you know? So we're talking to Madison today because we want to learn more about Lita, what that journey has been like, what Lita is doing today and hearing just the origin story of like how Lita started and whatnot. Oh, loaded question. So I think most companies that deal in healthcare and, you know, when you have a founder who's incredibly passionate, it usually comes from a place of their own story, right? Because running a company is extremely hard and sometimes it's difficult to get out of bed in, you know, the morning and, you know, you have 13 meetings a day and you're never going to be up all night. But the thing that keeps a lot of founders going is something personal to them right? Like this personal aspect of what keeps them running and keeps them moving and keeps them going forward. And so for me, that's, you know, my sexual assault that happened when I was in college. And, you know, I often 
think, was this a life-changing event? Like I didn't, you know, it didn't happen to me in like the next day. I'm like, business opportunity. I got this, like, you know, I'll fix this. But it took years of understanding what had happened to me and then being able to say, okay, there is something I can do here. There is something that I wish I would have had. And so that's kind of a lot of the genesis of where this idea came from is a lot of healing on my part, a lot of processing um, and processing with other people too, because it was not only about my story and a company is never good if it's only about one singular story or one singular person, but it's about the collective amount of people that we can impact. And the fact that all of our stories are unique and different, but at the same time, they are the same. And can we think about all these stories that are very similar and try to you know, attack them in a way with technology that has never been done before. There's a lot of great stuff you said there. It is really hard to run a company. I think it's particularly hard when you are pushing back in a space which tends to dictate people's experiences. And I kind of want to narrow in a little bit on, you mentioned that your experience happened in college. I've heard you on a couple other podcasts sort of talk a little bit about what your experience in like, being Lita and dealing with institutions and like trying to sort of pursue or explore accountability on an institutional level. Um, and I'm really interested to understand like where you're at at this point with Lita and your sort of perception of um, where your job in supporting survivors sort of like starts and stops and where it's gonna be necessary for institutions and, and you know people who work at the institutions ultimately to start to take responsibility um, and to provide that sort of like partnership for you guys. And maybe just what your experience with that in general has been like. Yeah, I mean, I think our goal is for the institutions to eventually be able to say, hey, like I can, I can spearhead a lot of this, but we acknowledge the fact that they can't spearhead a lot of this and for, for a lot of good reasons, right? Staffing costs are incredibly, like finding the right people that have the right training to administer this stuff is incredibly difficult. Being able to understand how logistically speaking, you can get resources to folks in a matter of time where they're comfortable. You know, we're kind of in the era of COVID too, where every time I like think COVID is over, it comes back and like schools get canceled. And like the wellness centers on campus aren't open anymore. They have like different hours or they're only virtual or they're booking out appointments like, you know, two to three months in advance. And so I think when we think about institutions, we think about the fact that it's not that they don't want to do a good job. They do want to do a good job, but they're, they only have so much leverage. There's politics and bureaucracy that allow them to not have as much leverage as they want to, to have in this world. And so can we as a company come in and say, can we take the weight off your shoulders a little bit? And can we start doing educational work and start implementing this stuff and understanding from your user base, you know, from the, from the student base, you know, what is really working, what isn't really working? And I think that that will eventually help them to be able to kind of implement this and spearhead it eventually. But we know that that's just not possible right now. And so we're kind of that, you know, solution where we can come in and be there in those times where there's just not enough staff you know, to handle these type of problems. Yeah, I love the like simultaneous acknowledgement that they could be doing more, but also they might be doing as much as they can or they know how to do. And it's just like, it's the messiness of these kinds of situations. Like you said, hiring the right people to be able to deal with, you know, 
sexual violence in the context of a wellness center is really different from hiring someone who can deal with like all the other things that are going on that students are having issues with. Uh, but I think this is like kind of a great moment to transition a little bit into, you know, the thing that we're all super excited to still be talking about um, and the impact of COVID on, you know, access to those resources. I know, or I believe you have a background in like epidemiology. Is that correct? Yeah. And I often say that had I known about COVID, I would have had a very great, you know, career path. I could have had a, you know, very good COVID testing company because I would have predicted <laughs> this. Um, but yeah, my background is in um, in, in epidemiology, so like uh, diseases and pandemics and things like that. Yeah, so I'm sure you have some really interesting, I mean, both perspective and also like to share your experience around how you've positioned Lita in relation to the impact the pandemic has had on sexual violence. I mean, I think if I had to guess, I would say probably there are less cases of sexual violence happening in universities right now because people aren't in person as much, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And in some way that makes it maybe even harder to be able to connect with people when there aren't those centralized like wellness centers or, you know, a phone number that people can call because they don't necessarily feel as connected to their university or they're not in person there. So I'm interested to hear about the impact there and, and sort of your perspective. Well, the interesting thing about COVID is access to services have gone down, but the rates have gone up especially rates of domestic violence, because a lot of people were stuck within the same home of the person who was their abuser. Um, and I wish the case was not, you know, like, oh, when college students went back, like everything was nice and great. When, you know, one of one of the things that we're doing, um, and, and, you know, we're doing work with institutions and colleges, one of those colleges having had a major sexual assault incident happen in the fall you know, at a fraternity, which if you don't know, 50% of sexual assaults happen at fraternities. And so as much as we want to think like maybe, you know, the no in-person aspect has like impacted this stuff, like it unfortunately is still happening, right? There's still these parties. In fact, people are like wanting to go to these parties even more and to like get, you know, human to human contact when we've just been inside for like, you know, it feels like three years, right? And so that's kind of, you know, the, the harsh reality of it is like the, the resources are down or that the feeling of access to resources does not feel as readily available. But that does not mean the rates have gone anywhere. In fact, the rates have just gone up, which means that we're at like a really good time to say we can step in and start doing some work around this area. I would love to dive a little bit more into the, the offering um, that you guys have, because I, I was sort of doing a little bit of looking into it. And what I find really interesting is the accountability circles and, and sort of the different ways in which you're orienting around a solution. So, I mean, 50%, first of all, that's, <laughs> that's a number that if you, I feel like that's a level of certainty about where a problem exists that I think in most other contexts would be a huge driving force for solutions and for people to be like, hey, we actually know where this is happening. So just to acknowledge, that's wild. And I think that I would love to hear about the ways in which understanding where those problems exist kind of like influence how you shape an offering around accountability um, and like healing circles and just be able to provide services that are really thoughtful and really acknowledge just what we know to be true, which is that like these things are happening in specific contexts that people want to be at, but that are ultimately harmful. 
Yeah, I mean, when it comes to accountability, the saying that we like to say is hurt people hurt people. So when somebody creates harm, it's not because they necessarily want to create harm, it's because that's all they know. You know, they themselves are hurt inside. And so until we heal that person inside, you know, that harm will still continue, right? That individual will still create harm. So when we talk to survivors about what does, what does justice look like for you? What does accountability look like for you? I think if we were to talk to folks maybe 10 years ago and say that, a lot of people would have thought that was the criminal justice system or the traditional legal system. But we know that that's not necessarily a viable system. We, we live in a world in which Bill Cosby, you know, had a massive, massive case and then got off on the case, you know, due on, you know, s- some legal complexities, which, you know, our whole thing with the district attorney, but like, we live in a world in which this understanding that the, the government is going to protect us and, and do the right thing doesn't always necessarily vibe with what we as survivors want, which is just accountability. We just want that person to say sorry and say, I didn't mean it. And I know I hurt um, you and I don't want to hurt anyone else. Because I think as a survivor, the thing that we're most scared of is if we do not report, if we do not go public about it, then that person will only do it to more people. And we hold that burden on us, right? That is, that's, I think, one of the biggest burdens survivors hold. So when it comes to accountability circles, what we wanted to do is actually work with folks that have created sexual harm um, and have acknowledged that you know, they have done sexual harm and actually rehabilitate them. And we've gone through an entire cycle of that already, you know, 16 weeks of therapy with these individuals. And oh my God, I mean, the results are amazing, right? These people are understanding that, yes, I created harm. That does not mean I'm a bad person. It means I've made a mistake. And it does not mean that I don't have the ability to rehabilitate. And so I think that there's a lot of love and forgiveness that we can give here. And it takes a long time to get to that place. Of course, after my sexual assault, like, the fir- you know, I wasn't thinking, you know, I forgive this person or anything like that. I'm mad. I'm angry. But after years and years later, all I wanted was, you know, just for him to get the therapy that he needed because he didn't understand boundaries and consent. And that's not his fault. You know, that's a lack of education. And we have in general um, in this country, a lack of education on affirmative consent and boundaries. And so I think it's part of the system that we have to create at LIDA, but at large in this you know, society where we start talking about what does accountability mean outside of the penal corrective system. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I know LIDA primarily sells kits to institutions and whatnot. And I think like a big part of it is, you know, what you touched on about how a survivor is feeling this burden and essentially how society has created a feeling of this, you're not able to kind of talk about what had happened to you because society makes it seem like it is your own fault. So a big thing that, you know, at Moss that we believe in is a lot of like trauma-informed design. Can you talk about how LIDA kind of works with that type of mindset, considering the audience and the individuals that have survived sexual assault? Yeah, I mean, it comes down to every single thing that we've done in both physical products and software products. You know, when you get a testing kit, 
and I'm sure we've all gotten COVID testing kits, you know, recently. You open up this instruction manual and it's very medical grade and it's just like, you know, you, you take your swab, you put it up your nose, you swab it around, you do this, all the stuff, right? It's very, very plain, it's very medical. And at the, at the end of the day, when it comes to like, for instance, using our early evidence kit um, or doing an SDI kit, right? It could have been, we could have made it to be that sterile, right? Like, you know, white and black font, you know, very sterile, all that kind of stuff, but we didn't. Like we, we researched what colors would comfort folks. We, you know, from the design perspective worked on what was color palettes that were universally like accessible from all genders as well. So we're not overly, you know, speaking to a female survivor, but we're also speaking to a non-binary survivor or a male survivor, which we know will not be accessing those resources, right? And they're going to be scared. And then as part of our design too, really comes down to the copywriting. So it's not only the design and the colors and how those colors make you feel in a moment of trauma and panic, but it's also the copywriting of how we talk about doing these things where we all know how to use a swab. We all know how to put a swab in a thing. We know how to you know, seal a box. We know how to send something to FedEx. These are all things that we've learned you know, over COVID and over the last like five to 10 years, right? But it's about how you say that. And like, for instance, I think the best example of this is in our like um, pamphlet of, you know, going through how you do everything. We have moments of time where we encourage the person to keep going and tell them, you know, this was not your fault. Thank you, you know, so much for continue going, take a deep breath, right? We have those words of affirmation and encouragement. You're not going to see that in a COVID test where it's like, thank you so much for, you know, sticking a swab halfway up, you know, your brain. I'm sorry it hurts, you know, like, I, I hope you feel better soon, right? You know, but when it comes to doing sexual assault work, like, it comes down to the design, it comes down to the colors, and it comes down to the copywriting of how we talk to people in the most survivor-centric way. I love that there is this opportunity to both help people in a direct way and also educate around uh, consent or affirmative consent, as you called it, and boundaries um, within like every touch point and every step of the way. It feels like there's you're able to sort of make an impact in you know, obviously different ways with different products, but also small and like less tangible ways that I think are really incredible. Um, and sort of on that note, I mean, you know, Lita's a company, you sort of have to think, especially in terms of growth around profitability, around your different audiences, around marketing to different groups of people and the, the level of sensitivity that you need, as you just like mentioned. So I'm curious kind of how you balance or maybe how you what your mental model looks like of like, OK, this is how we approach an institution who maybe is understaffed and they are their pain point is they can't offer the care that they wish that they could versus a survivor who like they are, you know, processing this trauma in real time. We don't know what stage they're at and we might be hitting them when they're still in like anger or where they really want to be, you know, just they want it to be over as I think, you know, happens a lot of the time. They might not want to acknowledge that it happened, but need to like there's all these different spaces and um, sort of points in people's experience that you're reaching them, like, how do you manage that? And what does that look like for you? I think it comes down to the fact we can't have staff or anyone on Team Lita assume that every single person's experience is the same. Because we get people 
in all different, you know, life cycles of their healing journey. That could be individuals who are sexually assaulted as children, who are finally getting mental health work, people in the moment, you know, things that were three months ago, or just even supporting a friend, right, who went through something like this. We see the wide range of every different type of healing. And I think what it comes down to when you build a product is realizing that although we have something that brings us together, right, this one common thread, you know, every journey is different. And so from a consumer perspective, it's about how do you let that individual person go down that journey while still having a good patient experience, knowing that my journey, your journey, and your journey are all going to be very, very different. And that comes to, to like the support staff, right? So we have folks, we have a care team. Um, a lot of that, that care team is sexual assault nurse examiners who've dealt with a wide bevy of every type of survivor, you know, that you could have ever seen. And when they talk to a survivor, that is a very individualized experience. And so if you're angry, then we're going to talk about, you know, your anger. And that's okay to talk about your anger. And if you're sad, we're going to talk about that sadness. And I think it's about having the right staff who don't make it such a, we do this, we do this, we do this, we do this, right? It's all about the patient experience, knowing whatever path they want to take, we can be there. And if we can't get there, right, if there's something that we can't physically do, our job as practitioners, as folks that, you know, want to be there for the survivor is to figure out who is that right person. Because of course there is going to be limitations. There's always limitations 100% of the time. But those limitations does not mean, you know, that we can't get that person to the right place. And so it's about what can we do as a team up to an extent and then if we cannot help that person, if we can't find them the right lawyer, if we can't find them the right therapist, you know, or whatever, it's about who is the best person to really help this person. Because I think where a lot of healthcare fails is they take people through a, you know, one, two, three step process. They fail out of one of those processes. And then it's just like, well, you're out of the system. Sorry, we can't help you. And that just is really bad to tell a trauma survivor. And oftentimes when you do that, they're not going to ever reenter, you know, the system again, right? They're not going to seek a therapist knowing that they had a really bad experience, you know, going through a system trying to find one in the first place. And so I think that that's really comes down to the consumer journey, right? Is being able to follow that user through whatever they want to do. Yeah. I mean, I think the way that you're describing all of this also speaks to how much you've as a you know leader in the organization kind of had to take on this burden of like, what is us doing the best that we can do? What is this person in this role within Lita doing? What is the best that they can do for this person? How do we manage that? What does it look like if we feel like we could have done more or could have done something differently? And I mean, I'm curious to, to ask like, when you hire for your team, what are things that you sort of what are sort of like your non-negotiables and also just like how do you kind of take care of yourself throughout this because obviously you have to speak about your own journey quite a bit and you would need to surround yourself with people who can support you in the ways that you need in order to continue to like have these really challenging conversations. Well it's funny that we started this conversation about how the benefits of social media are so amazing but um, I also am in the process of taking a social media break right now because it got uh, very intense for me um, in, in a lot of ways, right? I, I think I exist on tech Twitter for, for a lot of my feed, 
but I also kind of exist in the world of sexual assault and domestic violence and women's rights. And it can be very difficult for me to read the news of what's happening in the world. And sometimes it doesn't actually help me go and focus on what I need to accomplish. And so, you know, part of kind of from a mental health perspective, like what I'm doing for myself is I got rid of all social media on my phone, on my laptop, on everything. I'm not even looking at it. And that has been incredibly like mentally healthy for me. And we, we try to encourage that as a team. Like one of the things we're doing as a team too, is we offer therapy, obviously to sexual assault survivors at large, but now we're doing it internally. So the same, um, same work that you would normally get in one of our healing circles, we're now doing an internal healing circles with staff of Lita because it does, it does sting, right? Like every day I wake up and I have like, you know, eight to 10 meetings a day, even after this, I have around, I have five meetings, right? Where I will go and I will tell my story and I, I don't tell it for, you know, for any other reason than I know it's so important for me to tell it because it allows other people to feel comfortable in sharing what they have going on. And if that means that it's mentally, you know, a little bit unsustainable for me, that's okay. Because I know at the end of the day, me, like, talking about what has happened to me has helped so many people talk about what has happened to them. But it does take a lot of work on my end where I have to put those boundaries in place. And like, you know, for instance, I have a rule about not watching movies or cinema that have sexual assault or rape in it. Um, I just can't do it. Like I, I, as much as I want to watch like Athlete A and like, you know, some, some of these other documentaries, um, and of course I know the stories, I, I, can't, I can't put myself through that. And that's like a big boundary that I've done, which I actually know a lot of staff on our team has as well. I can completely understand. And I think that that's a really good example of a tangible way that you can t- sort of take care of yourself. If you are you know, a founder who works in a space where you are constantly having to share your story, like you mentioned in healthcare, I think this happens a lot. Uh, people are you know, using their experience as a point of reference for why they do the things that they do, why they're trying to make the change that they're trying to make. And I, I think that's a, that's a really, that feels like a really healthy boundary to set. And I guess just, yeah, to circle back to the first question, like, is there a sort of fundamental perspective or characteristic that you look for in the people that you hire for your team and like who you sort of try and surround yourself and, and the, you know, the survivors that you work with? Um, obviously empathy yeah. is probably one, but I'm curious <laughs> if you can elaborate on that a little yeah. bit. Yeah, empathy for sure. But I think the biggest one is resilience because you know, right? Startups are full of rejection and people saying it's not going to work and, and all that kind of stuff. And so you have to find people that not only have empathy, but have resilience can go through an entire day where people say, you know what, this is this is just not one of my priorities. It's not a problem. I just don't feel like dealing with it right now. And continue moving and being incredibly great and wake up the next day with a smile on their face and do it again. And so I think that's the biggest thing that separates us apart is we're all a bunch of folks that no matter what the world hits us, we have so much resilience, mostly because a lot of us are trauma survivors. So you end up getting this natural you know, res- resilience from that. But that is a huge part of what I think makes us a great team. That's amazing. I think it's super, super important to have like the right culture and like supportive team when it comes to success of like any company. In terms of like, you know, where Lita's at now, what has been the most challenging part 
so much. Um, I think you, you touched on this a lot, which is the mental health of everyone on our team. It's hard. It's really hard doing the work that we do. I think it would be way easier if we, if all of us did like literally anything else, but we're taking our own trauma, right? And we're putting it into business, which is one way of doing healing work. I'm not sure all therapists would agree that's the best way of healing, but like that's one of the most challenging parts is kind of the mental health like aspect. And of course there's challenging parts of like generally running a business, which is like making a sale, like, you know, getting things across the line, talking to investors, all of that, which is tough, but you know, like I said, our team has resilience so we can get through it. But I think the thing that we have to work on the most and what, what will keep us going at the end of the day is if we can take all of that stuff that gets hit, you know, and, and have this mental health like piece in place where we're really taking care of our own. Um, I think that's going to be a really big success point for us. I think that's going to be the only way that we succeed is if we really think about our, you know, individual mental health because startups are hard and they're a long road and it takes longer than anyone tells you it'll take. And I think that that is, you know, one of the things that no one told me when I first started. I think I thought it was like, you know, three years, four years, you're done, you're, you know, you're exited, you're a multimillionaire, but that doesn't happen. It can be seven years, it can be eight years, it can be 15 years. And so just getting people that want to be here, you know, for the mission um, and, you know, can take care of their mental health as well. For sure, for sure. I think Katie would agree when we had started Moss, like mental health is at the top of our mind just because especially just in tech, you know, not just like with starting a company, it can be really hard in whatever way it is. Uh, what does the future of Lita look like? Any big vision, anything coming up that you could can share or would like to share? Cool. So um, one of the things that I think is going to be so amazing and incredible is the ability to do self-guided um, therapy sessions. So I got really into Headspace, um, you know, being able to kind of do self-guided meditation on my own time, work through this stuff. You know, we work with primarily folks that are between the ages of 18 to 25. And so sometimes it doesn't always work to see a therapist or be able to go see a therapist or do group therapy or something like that. We try to make it as approachable as possible with times that work for everyone, but we also want to start doing self-guided stuff, right? Where we can bring people in and they can self-guide themselves through therapy sessions, workshops, like really understanding that healing can take, take time and it can happen at any point of your day, right? If you wake up at 3 a.m., you've just had a nightmare and you need to watch something about how to get back in your head and start thinking about, you know, what did this mean and how do I move on from this? I think it will be an amazing resource and I'm so stoked to start building that. That's incredible. I love the model because I think that, I mean, I started doing therapy uh, during COVID and so I've actually never met my therapist in person. It's been completely remote. And I think the, the ability to have that support um, and not have to go in person. I know a lot of people who were seeing a therapist in person and actually stopped because they were like, I don't feel comfortable, you know, accessing it in this way. I think I'm such a proponent of therapy, so is Sarah. And I think whatever method you can use, whatever approaches, get people that sort of like support that they need in a way that helps them on their journey, even if it's a temporary solution before you get back in person or whatever whatever the case may be. I think that's 
incredible. And I just want to also acknowledge, like, this has been an incredible conversation. We were so excited to talk to you, but it's so clear how intentional and sort of specific you are in your vision for impacting both the experiences of survivors, but also just like changing the culture around, you know, sexual violence and sexual assault. I think it's a massive problem. Like, as we talked about, it exists at every level. And obviously with your, with your background, you can probably (laughs) map it out in a way that is both exciting and invigorating, but also terrifying and like just overwhelming. And so um, I just want to acknowledge that, like, this is amazing. You're amazing. This, the team is just like doing such an incredible thing for the world. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And yeah, this is, you know, this conversation is, is not even remotely over in terms of what we have to do. It's just the beginning. And I think it's just going to take a lot of really strong people coming together and talking about really, really challenging things that we just don't know the answers to yet, but we have an idea. And that's like the best thing about technology is you can have an idea, you can put it out there, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work, but at least we're putting it out there and something can be done, something is tangible. Thank you so much again. And uh, yeah, we would love to reconnect in the future, hear more about the journey and I'm sure the progress that you'll make between now and then. If we want to find you on social uh, or, if, you know, if people are interested in connecting with Lita, like where, where's the best place to do so? We can obviously add lots of links and whatnot to the show notes, but if there's like a primary place to reach out, what would that be? Yeah. So I am fair. Like I still look at all my DMs on Twitter. So it, it's Martyr Dice. And um, M-A-R-T-Y-R-D-I-S-O-N. It's like martyr and then Madison together, put together. Because sometimes you're a martyr when it comes to speaking about a lot of these subjects. Um, but I embrace, you know, that part of me. Yeah, I love that. And it's good to have a sense of humor about it too, right? Like you have to, you have to be able to, you know, keep keep that energy up. I, you're hilarious on Twitter as well. So obviously, kind of on brand. <laughs> Oh, yes, I know. <laughs> Come back soon, but like take care of your mental health, you know, all the yeah. both, both and both and <laughs> come back, come back soon. But we're missing your memes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 Uh, well, uh, so great to chat with you. Have a great one and uh, we'll catch up soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moss and Friends. As always, you can connect with us further at whoismoss.com or on Twitter and Instagram at whoismoss with underscores between the words. If you know anyone that would be the perfect Moss and Friends guest or maybe a project you think we should hop in on, please reach out. We'll see you next time.